This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. We talked to Ray Padgett in episode six when he took us on a tour of the cover versions of the songs of Time Out of Mind. Ray runs a website called Cover Me, but he's also the guy behind the great Dylan Substack newsletter, Flagging Down the Double E's. There, Ray takes deep dives into live Dylan shows, describing, reviewing, or fisking them one at a time to great effect. He's also mixed into the series a bunch of interviews with musicians who have played with Bob live on stage. So far, those have included Jim Keltner, Winton Watson, Ben Montench, Larry Campbell, and about a half a dozen others. And they've each been really interesting with stories about the music and the man who plays with them. Well, it turns out that these weren't just little side trips for Ray, and he's now spoken with over 50 people who have been on stage or involved with Dylan's amazing live career. And he's putting all those interviews into a new book called Pledging My Time. And he's asking you to pledge too. He's running an Indiegogo campaign. It's essentially a Kickstarter to fund this project by selling books in advance and offering a bunch of other really cool perks. The campaign is off to a great start, but there's still another month or so for you to get your order in or to take advantage of some of the bonus offers and help Ray make this book a reality. There are links in the show notes to the Indiegogo site and to sign up for Ray's newsletter. So earlier this week, I sat down with Ray to talk about this project and learn a little more about what he's learned in talking to all these Dylan insiders. For this special episode, there's no extended version for our premium members. But to hear the longer extended takes on our talks with Mark Howard, Larry Starr, Wesley Stace, and a dozen others, and to support our work, please consider becoming a premium member. You can join at our website or at our new Substack. There's links in the show notes. But now, here's my conversation with Ray Paget. Welcome back to Dylan FM, and thanks for coming today to talk about your new book project. Give us an overview of what has come out of, I guess it's kind of a spinoff of Flagging Down the Double E. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me back, first of all. And yeah, so I have run the newsletter Flagging Down the Double E's for, I can't believe it's been going on three years, kind of started as like a pandemic project. Um, but turned into something bigger. And, you know, I write, I'm sure many people know, I write about Bob Dylan concerts. And most of them are just research or me reviewing shows or, you know, funny little things. But I do occasionally do these very long interviews, really in depth with sort of the musicians that Dylan has played with, whether it was someone from the 60s or someone from, you know, 10 years ago. And those have sort of been far and away the most popular. I mean, those things get thousands and thousands of readers, even though they're wonky, they're long, like they're in-depth. They certainly have sort of fun, personal Dylan stories, but also a lot of it is like, you know, about how did you create this arrangement, a girl from the North Country in 2004, like fairly inside baseball stuff. So I've been fairly surprised at how popular they are. And so, yeah, so I'm collecting a bunch of those into a book 
and adding a bunch of new ones I've done just for the book that are like the ones I've done on the newsletter with different people. The book I'm aiming to have out next, probably summer, my sort of penciled in date is June. But right now I'm crowdfunding it through the platform Indiegogo through the middle of December to you know raise money for things like licensing photos and actually printing up the books themselves. As I reread a bunch of those interviews last night, it, it occurred to me, there's not a lot of fresh ground in the Dylan world, but the people near Bob don't talk publicly, don't do interviews. You know, we haven't seen a ton of this. Obviously we've seen a little bit. So it really is an interesting angle. And there's so much, as you say, depth and volume there. I mean, it gets specific, but I think in the specifics is where we get the flavor of what these relationships and these, and these things were like. So it's, I think it's really amazing and actually going to be a pretty important book because the name list is so good. Why don't you give us some of the names both that have been and are coming so people can get a flavor for who, who you're writing about, who you're talking to, and they're going to hear from. Sure. So yeah, there's maybe, I haven't, I haven't done a count, but 50 or so people. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty big list. You know, and there are some household names, right? I talked to like Jeff Bridges or Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers or people like that, Richard Thompson. But really, the, things I'm, the ones I'm most excited about are like the ones who aren't household names. I should say, they're probably household names to the people who listen to a podcast like this. You know, Larry Campbell or Jim Keltner or Scarlett Rivera or Duke Robillard. Um, but like they're not household names in a wide in a wide sense. These are these are sort of often session musicians, behind the scenes people that Dylan has plucked out of often semi obscurity and and toured with for years. And as you say, these these people in many, if not most cases, don't talk much. A number of the people I spoke to have never given an interview before. In many other cases, they've never given any particularly in depth interview before. You know and there is this sort of cone of silence around Dylan's world. And it often, I mean, in more than one of these cases, it took me over a year to convince someone to talk with me. That's not unusual at all at this point. But, you know, the, the patience, I, I think, has paid off because I am learning these stories that, you know, no one, no one really knows before. I actually found, I'd, you know, read them when the newsletter came in, but sometimes, you know, you're on your phone or you kind of skim through them and go, this is amazing. But I really sat down last night and they're just fascinating. You know, there's, there's just tons of examples. I, I thought uh, Stan Lynch, for example, was just amazing. And Billy Cross, you know, so those are definitely two not of the biggest names on this list. But there's so many kind of personal insights and, and their own observations, as well as, uh, you know, these, these cool little stories of, of how something happened or doing something with Bob. Was it, uh, was, I forget which of those two guys it was who, who went who took Bob to see Frank Sinatra at a, at a concert. That was Stan Lynch. The, Stan Lynch, yeah. Um, the Heartbreakers drummer. Yeah, the whole story is just killer. It really got me very, very excited about this, about this book and about what's, what's in the rest of it. Why don't you drop a few of the names of the new exclusive for the book but not yet published ones? Sure. So in terms of the sort of proper band member names or people who like were on tour with him for lengthy periods of time, uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, obviously from the 60s, and then again, Rolling Thunder. Uh, actually, I think the most recent one I did was Kinky Friedman, also Rolling Thunder, but the second half. But then, hilariously, there's this amazing video some people have seen in 1991. They did this telethon to raise money for Chabad. And so Kinky Friedman's telling this story about like playing with Bob, who looks you know drunk out of his mind in front of a bunch of Orthodox Jews in the audience. 
you know, and then there's also people who are not official band members, but are musicians who performed with him on stage once or twice or back behind the scenes. You know, I think I mentioned Jeff Bridges. I talked to Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel, who opened a bunch of shows and his buddies with him and, and has sat in some. One, one reason why I did that was interesting and is not a household name, but a name that some people might know is Marshall Crenshaw. And he's a really weird one because he is, was never in Bob Dylan's band, but he auditioned to be in Bob Dylan's band. The first ever never-ending tour band was supposed to be G.E. Smith on guitar, Chris Parker, who I talked to on drums, and Marshall Crenshaw on bass. And uh, Marshall could not cut it. And I don't think he's ever t- talked about that before, but auditioning for, for three days, I think, before Bob fired him. So there's all sorts of sort of little weird stories like that in there as well. So who are the who are the gets that haven't agreed or are still you're still chasing that you that you'd like to add? Oh, I mean that's a long list, you know. Like I say, I've been amazed at how much success I've had, but Lord knows I still get no's or no responses. I mean, it's sort of interesting because like the people who I, on some degree, most like to get are also the people who've talked a fair amount. Like obviously, G. E. Smith would be someone I really am hoping to get. He's also someone who's done a fair number of interviews. Um, you know, Robbie Robertson would be, would be the same thing. Al Cooper. Yeah, Al Cooper. I'm going to try again with him. We've, we've emailed some and he's like, I'm sick of talking about Bob, which fair enough. He's been doing it for like, you know, 60 years <laughs> continuously at this point. But I'm like, how about just one more? But, but I, his stories probably are told. And that's probably true for some of these other people too. And I, I do think these new ones are kind of amazing. I thought, who was the first, the very first drummer, or the drummer who did, Billy Cross was the 78 drummer. He was the 78 guitarist. Oh. I've spoken to, yeah, I've spoken to a lot of, <laughs> I feel like I would actually, I'm do, so one of the things I'm doing for this Indiegogo is like, I'm going to create some sort of like Zoom book parties with the band members just for like, you know, donors. Um, right. And one of the ones I'm, I've spoken to so many drummers, I'm thinking of doing like a Dylan Drummers Summit with drummers from across the decade, like Stan Lynch, and then be Chris awesome. Parker, who was the early never-ending tour guy, and then Winston Watson, who was there for years in the... Jim Keltner, of course, you know, who's like probably played with Bob across more decades than anyone. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't play the drums. I know next to nothing about drums, but for some reason, uh, I, I'm good at talking to drummers. <laughs> so we should sort of clarify, we're, part of the reason that we're talking about this right now is because you have this Indiegogo going, um, you're looking for support because you're self-publishing the book so people can basically pre-order, uh, commit some dollars, and there's tiers of different uh, benefits that you have. And, and this is going for about another month as of the time we're recording this. And uh, you're doing very well so far. You've, you've passed your goal. But talk a little bit about the, the tiers and levels and, and what you're looking for people to sign up to do. Yeah. So as you say, I'm self-publishing, which means there's my first two books were through publishers and I got an advance. Uh, there's no advance. The advance sort of comes from, comes from you all. And there are a variety of tiers. The lower tiers are just straight pre-orders like you would do with any other book. You can get it in hardcover. You can get it in paperback. You can get it as an ebook. Simple enough. But then uh, when you go a little higher, that's when it kind of gets fun and more interesting because like I said, I'm organizing these virtual book parties that are going to be private just for people who have donated and I've already talked to a bunch of the musicians, including many that we've spoken to about joining. And, you know, some of them, may, maybe I'll do a one-on-one with Ben Montench from the Heartbreakers or something. But like I say, maybe I'll do a bunch of drummers. I've talked to a million people from the Rolling Thunder Review. So I've, I've you know, I've spoken to Scarlett and Rob Stoner and Mansfield and stuff, and maybe have them all on at once. And I'll talk to them and, you know, people who have 
have pre-ordered the book at these levels can talk to them too. Jump on the Zoom and, you know, ask Scarlett a question or ask um, Benmont or Stan Lynch a question. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of at the higher levels, not, I don't think, outrageously expensive, but uh, a little more expensive, you get access to those. And I'm going to try to make them pretty fun. You mentioned before, you know, the reluctance and the difficulty of getting people to participate. Um, have you learned anything about the way secrecy works in the Dylan camp? Meaning, are, you know, have they, have they told you they were expressly told, are they violating documents? Has, you know, has Jeff Kramer come to your house and, you know, soaked your windows or anything? I haven't heard from uh, either of the Jeffs yet uh, who seem to run everything in the Dylan world. No, it's, it, if anything, my surprise has been the opposite. I sort of assumed, I remember when I did my first interview or, or when I reached out for the first one, like two years ago, I assumed that there were like NDAs because of how little people talk. And there aren't. No one has ever said they signed an NDA or even were expressly told not to talk. It's sort of a unspoken thing. It's the fact that everyone knows that Bob Dylan is quite private, so they don't want to violate his trust or you know his confidence, which is why it, early on, it really took me a while to get any interviews. But then I think once people see my approach and that they're respectful and it's always about the music first and I'm not, they're not dumb questions, they're not gossipy questions, I think that's why I've been able to get as many people as I have. First of all, I think you do an amazing job, which I want to talk about in terms of the, the questions and the discussions. But, um, you know, on this topic, I always got the impression there were not signed documents. And it was a combination of wanting to work again and respect. Uh, I'm kind of not surprised. I also think you have the benefit in many cases of decades, uh, you know, of time. And that, which actually reminds me of something I thought of. And I'm curious about your take on this, which is they've talked so little and yet they had like your Larry Campbell interview kind of expressed this a little bit, you know, they've had this best experience that any musician could ever have. You'd think they'd be overflowing to talk about it and tell these stories. Cause it's this cool thing that they haven't talked about, you know, other than Al Cooper and, and uh, G Smith, maybe as much as they'd want to. So do you get the feeling of relief and excitement to get to tell these stories? Yeah, I definitely get that feeling. Like, you know, once by the time I'm actually talking to these people on the phone, they're, you know, open books. They're, they tend to be very talkative. They tend to be excited to talk about it. You know, the, convincing them to do it in the first place can be difficult. But once they're on board, they have these amazing stories. And, they, you know, I run all these, as people probably know if they've read them, as Q&As, right? It's not like I talk and then I only use a sentence or two. I, I really let them expound, you know, in their own words. And a lot of them you know, really go on it at some length. Sometimes I'm, I'm doing a transcript or something and I'll be like, I haven't like said a word in, you know, four or five minutes. <laughs> They've just been going on telling these stories without much prompting for me. Yeah, I, I actually think that comes off as one of the nice, you know, elements of it. They, they, they get to go on and talk. I also think you ask the kinds of questions that even if they got talked to by, you know, the mainstream press, Rolling Stone, who would have the goal of the, big overall arching thing. I think the, the cool stuff comes out because you're saying, you know, hey, what happened when you walked up to the Pope or what was it like when, you know, Tom Petty did this and Bob did that. So it the detail puts them in a frame of mind, you know, to tell more interesting stories, you know, frankly, than to try to, you know, in their heads, formulate the big PR downbite statement. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, obviously I do a lot of research for these, but also in some sense, I've been doing research for 20 years by being an obsessive Dylan fan. So I do go fairly deep. And even of the people who um, have, you know, ha- have sort of a stock thing of stories they do tell, like for instance, Kinky Friedman, I mentioned, I recently talked to him. We talked about Rolling Thunder and he's got some great stories, some of which he's told before. You know, he's a, he's a guy who's, who's out there as a public persona um, out there in many ways. Uh, but so we talk about that and I get some good stuff. But then I then I start we start talking about not Rolling Thunder, but in 1991, he did this Chabad telethon I mentioned. And like no one has asked him about that. Right. That's like deeply obscure. It's this one song they played on some like public access show in the 90s with him and Bob. This is not like part of his stock story. I get tons of stuff that he's never talked about just by even knowing that exists, which I don't think most other people would. It's just a great idea for a, for a project. So as you've done the interviews, you know, that you've done, I don't know what percentage of the book ones are done. I know it's quite a few. Um, what has surprised you? I mean, there's a lot of interesting nuance and kind of color about working with Dylan and, and, and Bob himself and the way that music happens. I really like the one question you asked about how the arrangements came to be to, to one of the guys, you know, about whether Bob was dictating or it was coming from the band. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, they change the songs endlessly. How does that happen? I, I was very interested in that. So my question anyway, is what have you learned or what surprised you the most in the big sense as you've gotten this kind of insight into Bob, Bob Live, Bob in the studio, the world of Dylan. One thing that has come across, you know, from people across the decades ties into something you just said about the arrangements that surprised me. And maybe it shouldn't have, but just how rigorously Bob rehearses and drills these people. You think of Bob for good reason as spontaneous, off the cuff, improvisational, and all those things are true. But before every tour, there are extensive multi-day rehearsals, even if they just ended the previous tour a month ago, right? Like even before they did this European tour that just as we taped this ended last week. And it's basically the same songs they've been doing all year, but there were several days of rehearsals I heard about um, in Poughkeepsie before they headed over to Europe. And, you know, that's how the rearrangements come about. But what then did not surprise me is you hear plenty of stories um, like I was just talking to this guy about uh, learning what song I think it was a, a new arrangement of Tangled Up in Blue. And he was saying they worked on it for like two hours in rehearsal. And then the next day they went on stage and Bob started performing it a completely different way. So that part does not surprise me that there are these extensive rehearsals that then Bob may or may not <laughs> follow when they actually get on stage. Uh, that has always struck me as well for a guy who's 3000 shows in, right? These two hour sound checks, which I know Bob doesn't often go to. Too, but obviously once them done and then these these long rehearsals uh, endlessly it's it's very impressive there are these long rehearsals but it's not like bob comes in with a to-do list and saying all right we're going to do this song and we want to arrange it this way and here here i wrote out a bunch of charts for everyone to follow along you know there's these long rehearsals but of course bob usually comes into them and just starts playing something and he may or may not say a word to the band the whole time <laughs> and uh, the arrangements kind of come out of them just trying to follow along and holding on for dear life in some cases it sounds like he does the arrangements or as an idea he's reaching for and expresses that and they work for it. But, you know, we've heard endlessly over the years that people are just expected to live up to or read his mind or follow him. And, and that somehow 
I don't know what the right word is, but being asked to do that allows them to do it. There, there is this lack of communication that seems to contribute to the success. Paul Williams used to talk about Bob as this sort of psychic band leader, you know, somehow moving them all in the same direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, but it can cut both ways. A lot of musicians, the people who stick around especially, love it. They find it very rewarding and unlike anything they have done before or since. But there are others, often the ones that don't last that long, that are not on board with it, that find it extremely stressful, understandably, getting no direction from the boss. You know, I talked to Duke Robillard, who was someone, a guitarist, who recorded successfully with Dylan on Time Out of Mind. It went well, he was happy. And then, what, 16 years later, Bob hires him to join the touring band. He goes, oh, great. You know, we had a really good relationship. And, you know, there's maybe a month where it's good, and then immediately things go south fast and Bob's glaring at him on stage, but not really telling him what the problem was. And soon <laughs> within, you know, a week or two, Duke is uh, out mid tour. He's just gone. Um, there's a big fight on the bus. He told, told me all about. So it's, you know, it can be stressful at the same time that the guy, he's not going to heal. You're reading these cryptic looks where, he lo- Oh, he looked like he smiled at me when I was doing that solo. Or, oh, why is he glaring at me now? And you've just got to kind of roll with that if you can. Yeah, even even Larry Campbell, right? Someone who was obviously deep inside for a long, long time expressed a little of that, although a good attitude towards dealing with it. Yeah. I mean, he, as I recall, it's been a while, but I, you know, he was like, he had a good a good run. And when it was over, he was like, all right, it's it's time, you know. And obviously he went on to this sort of very warm relationship with Levon Helm, which in many ways is the polar opposite of Bob, where they're friends and they're hanging out. <laughs> Yeah, uh, more peers than he ever would be with with Dylan. But I think that's but that but the flip side, I guess, is the people, you know, Larry Campbell is one that had this a fairly long window, but it opened and it closed. But then you get these people like Jim Keltner, who every four or five or 10 years come back in. I mean, he's first reporting with Bob in the early 70s, uh, doing some of the songs from the greatest hits album. And then he tours with them in the gospel era. And then he does the traveling Willowberries with them. And then he's even in the never-ending tour he's subbing in in like the 2000s. So some of these people just sort of come and go over the decades. Um, and I think they're the people who can sort of roll with Bob's weird MO the best. Yeah, the other interesting thing, obviously, is kind of the, you know, the personal insights. Um, and, and we also, we, we seem to hear a spectrum or both sides of the coin there. You know, there's a lot of these stories about Bob being, you know, very caring and very, you know, personable with them and their families and their different situations um, and, and fun. And, you know, there's one about, again, one of those guys I read that I mentioned earlier, who he talked about diving off a boat and Bob going swimming with him. And he kind of said, Bob Bob was up for anything and sending a plane, you know, somewhere to a, to a funeral and other, you know, nice gestures. And then there's these other situations where there's, there's zero communications or Bob's got to be Bob and, so what's that, what more did you learn on the personal side or, or just sense of Bob the man in aggregate from these conversations? As you say, it's sort of all over the map, but there is more loyalty, maybe is the word, in terms of music. You know, like I say, these people keep coming back. Another one's Alan Pasqua, who played keyboards for the entire 1978 tour. Doesn't hear a word from Bob for like 30 years, and all of a sudden he's playing on Murder Most Foul and other things just a few years ago. Or like another one that struck me was I've I've spoken to a few sort of behind the scenes people. And one of whom is this guy, Richard Fernandez, who is the tour manager for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Bob Dylan for a while. 
And so, you know, he they toured together in the 80s. Richard Fernandez sticks around for a couple of years while Petty's sort of off the road. And then Petty gets back on the road. He says bye to Bob. That's the end. He doesn't really talk to him again much. Um, but then Richard Fernandez is at home in Hawaii a few years ago. The day after Tom Petty dies, his phone rings. Who should it be but Bob Dylan calling to offer his condolences? I knew you were close. You worked together the whole time. And they just chit-chat about, you know, missing Tom Petty. This is, again, decades after he talked to him. So given how enigmatic he is, reclusive, you know, you don't think that's not the guy. I don't think that's his public perception as that guy. He doesn't, he certainly doesn't crow about it, but there are more stories like that than I ever expected. Well, right. I'm really looking forward to this book um, and, and, and maybe those events that you're doing. But I, it was one thing that occurred to me last night is, you know, behind me is like most of our listeners here, shelves full of Bob Dylan books. There are very few that are based on kind of primary first person, you know, information, right? It's a bunch of folks thinking about Bob or reading into Bob or, or, or whatever. And I, I was Suze Rotolo and the Victor Mamoudis book, which is, you know, kind of second person from the tapes. And, you know, there's maybe two or three others, but I really think this is going to be an important an interesting addition to the canon. So I'm, I'm appreciative that you did it and, and glad you stumbled into this, this idea. I think it's going to be fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, I have my own Bob Dylan bookshelves as well. And yeah, I, I hope to have this be a little different than anything else that's on there. All right. So everyone's got uh, a few more weeks to go to uh, dylanlive.substack.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. However, you're seeing this to directly to the Indiegogo. So you can uh, either pre-order or get yourself some perks uh, to get access to this book. And mid mid next year, sometime uh, we'll we'll look forward to having the book. And and I'm sure Ray, you and I will will speak again. But thanks for joining us for this preview today. Well, thank you very much. I uh, I have my own Bob Dylan bookshelves as well. And yeah, I, I hope to have this be a little different than anything else that's on there. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>